I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we're joined by Congressman Dan Kildee, who's represented Michigan's 5th Congressional District since 2013. Congressman Kildee and The Trade Guys discuss trade adjustment assistance, its impact on U.S. communities, and the important need to renew the program soon. Plus, we'll touch on President Biden's infrastructure plan and its likelihood to get passed in Congress. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We are joined today by an extremely distinguished guest. We have with us Congressman Dan Kildee, who has been with the United States House of Representatives for Michigan's 5th Congressional District since 2013. He is part of the Democratic leadership team in the 116th Congress as Chief Deputy Whip, and he serves on the prestigious House Ways and Means Committee. My former boss, Lindy Boggs, used to serve on that committee. I know how important that committee is. Congressman, thank you so much today for joining the Trade Guys. We've got a lot to talk about. Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thank you. Well, where should we start? Guys, I know that you've been really wanting to ask Congressman Kildee about the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program. So should we start with that? Yeah, that's pending legislation. So yeah, that's where we'd really appreciate your insight. There's a commitment to get it done. I've been working on this legislation for a while. And with the expiration, if we, unlike some other programs that expire, in this case, we would actually see a pretty significant curtailment of some of the more conventional aspects of trade adjustment assistance, the retraining issues, you know, that that's important. So I expect we'll get it done. It may ride along with one of these other big pieces of legislation that we're working on. Typically that's the way some of this gets done, but you know, we may get it done through regular order, we'll see. But the reason that I took this on is that I, I felt like there was a need to get back to in a different way another element of trade adjustment assistance that was in uh, a few years ago, and that is trade adjustment assistance for communities. I mean, we have the what we tr- typically think about trade adjustment assistance, retraining, reskilling for transition to the 21st century economy or support for the suppliers impacted by trade. This initiative really has more to do with adding this community trade adjustment assistance and actually thinking a little bit beyond trade only, because an, an honest assessment of the disparate impact of the evolving economy on communities is that trade is a piece of it. But, you know, it's obviously more complex than that. Trade disruption and technology change has changed the manufacturing environment in this country, along with some other factors. But those are two really big factors. Globalization, changes in the global marketplace, changes in the way manufacturers access their supply chain. But technology, if you were to pick one item that has had a greater impact and a disparate impact on older manufacturing communities, it would be the big changes in technology, in the technology of manufacturing. Technology generally, but the technology of manufacturing specifically. And so this is a long way of saying trade adjustment assistance. But what we're really talking about is providing a level of planning and support to communities that have been disparately affected by these big changes in our economy. 
in order to get them back to something that feels closer to the starting line for them and not get into this sort of, you know, repetitive blaming and shaming of these communities for the conditions that they're trying to extricate themselves from, but recognizing that this happens, you know, the trade environment, the global marketplace has an impact on the way production is, is distributed around the world and around our cities and towns in the country. And technology has had a negative impact. And we have, as a result, communities that are chronically distressed, that have had significant population loss, that have an overabundance of vacant and abandoned commercial, industrial, and residential property. And that that is a part of the legacy of this transition that we've gone through. And if we want those communities to be able to fully engage and fully benefit from the evolution in our economy, we've got to help clean up the overhang of the past. And that's what I'm really focusing on with this trade adjustment assistance for communities legislation that'll be part of the reauthorization of TAA general. Yeah, you know, Bill and I were staffers for a Blue Ribbon Task Force here at CSI, a commission that ran for about two and a half years. And it, it contained people like uh, Charlene Bereshevsky and Bill Brock, uh, Senator Brock, and uh, Fred Smith, the chairman of FedEx. We looked at you know all kinds of changes to the economy, and we came to the same conclusion, that it's really about adjustment and mo- a lot mo- larger driven by technology and not just trade. The commission's recommendations would support exactly what you're proposing here. I've always suspected that it was the committee jurisdictions that kept us from doing a broader adjustment assistance, that the Ways and Means kind of stuck to trade and left the broader workforce and development to other committees. What's the situation? That is true. And I think in Congress generally, you know, you learn after you've been here a while, you all know it because of your bird's eye view of the place. You know, out in the communities, when I if I talk about committee jurisdiction, people don't know what in the world I'm talking about, right? Yeah. But I mean, it makes a difference here. And so the way I've kind of approached this is, you know, I, I, I worked hard to get on the Ways and Means Committee. I think it's a really critical place to be for trade, for healthcare, tax policy, all this mm-hmm. stuff. But for me, it's almost like whatever toolbox I have to deal with what has been sort of my life's work. And that is how to repair and restore these older industrial cities. That's the work that has defined the last 25 years of my service. I'm going to go in through whatever door is most open to me. And so in this case, I mean, we could have done this through another mechanism. We could have done it through the Educational Labor Committee, or we could have done it through Oversight and Government Reform Committee. We could have done it through a lot of different tools. This is the one that presents itself to me trade adjustment assistance and the need for trade and technology related assistance tracks really closely with the other problems that these older industrial cities have faced. This to me was the the hook that I thought was the best one and the best way for me to try to get some of this policy done. And it is, I mean, it it is self-limiting in some way. Because in order to do it through trade adjustment assistance, we have to make sure that we're not coloring too far outside the lines in terms of our jurisdiction, knowing that once we get this piece in place, we can start to build from some of the other committees a broader, I think more fulsome approach to the problem that we're really trying to get. I spent 20 years on the Hill and most of that time trying to defend this program from attacks from various sources. 
And I recall then, which was 70s, 80s, early 90s, it had a community adjustment provision that was never used uh, and it went away. Can you say a little bit about, first about why you think it was never used and why do you think your, your proposal is going to get used? Because that's not going to do much good if nobody uses it. Yeah, it's, this is the problem. And I think part of it has to do, not all, but part of it has to do with the fact that the communities, if we were to think about sort of these places, the defined communities that are most impacted, it would benefit from community trade adjustment systems. They have other deficits that they're trying to overcome. And one of those deficits that we're, we're still trying to get our arms around is that they have limited local government capacity and limited bandwidth in terms of the problems that they're going to try to address. They're doing their sort of own triage based on the limitations that local governments have. Absent some really outstanding leadership and some partners, it's tough for communities to organize themselves around accessing some of these tools. And so one one piece of this for us is to make sure that part of it, as has been the case in the past, helps a community put together a plan for the use of these these opportunities. It still begs the question, if you got to connect with somebody who can see that and who can run with that, but I think it's a step. But to answer your question more directly, it kind of speaks to the, the depth of this challenge that we face. We have these older communities that have experienced this sort of chronic economic malaise. And even during periods of growth, even if you look back, for example, the last two significant periods of sustained growth, we tend to associate them with like the Clinton era. That's what we associate it with anyway. And and the most recent period of growth that has only been interrupted, you know, by the pandemic. In both cases, the communities that we're talking about have not really substantially benefited. Some, but not substantially. And so there is this underlying problem of community capacity that I don't think we've ever quite adequately addressed. We made an attempt during the Obama administration, and I worked on this. I was not in Congress, but I was running an organization called the Center for Community Progress based here in D.C. And we were working on this concept of providing external support to communities operational support, thought leadership, you know, literally moving an application through the process, getting it written in a way that it's fundable and measurable and defensible. It, it seems we take for granted the fact that the community just needs to know that there's resources available and that they'll just go get them. And the capacity limitations that a lot of these communities deal with keeps them from actually being able to pursue every opportunity. This is a big question. It's a chicken and egg issue. We're trying to get some of that into this legislation so we can address it. Can I ask you a question about geography? And because you, you made a very interesting point, which is that these smaller cities and Flint, Flint would be a good example. One time quite robust, but it was General Motors town, but it's smaller than Detroit, smaller than Chicago. And uh, I've no, I noticed this in Ohio with Dayton versus Columbus. The force of gravity over the past 25 or 30 years was toward larger city centers. And you see the movement to the, the big city centers on the coasts and also cities like St. Louis and Kansas City tended to decline in favor of Chicago or larger cities. For whatever reason, post-pandemic, it appears that may reverse. 
that people don't want to be densely packed in cities, that they're looking for, they're, they're able to do their work remotely and they're looking for lower cost and less dense housing. So I'm just curious of your thoughts, since you've been in this business for a while, whether it's, it's the small cities moments and that could be a point that, of leverage. I believe it is. I share that view that while there still will always be an attraction to larger places, they're iconic brands like Detroit. I go anywhere in the world and yeah. I live about 65 miles from Detroit. The farther away I am from home, the more I associate with Detroit. Sure. It has this brand to it. Youngstown, Gary, not so mm -hmm. much, right? But it is the case that these communities have, you know, sort of the basic bones of the urban experience without a lot of the size that I think sometimes makes it difficult for them to attract some of the you know economic investment and population that might be interested in that experience but not want to be in a large metro. And that's partly the reason that we feel like we need to move to get the communities as we define them to that starting line because that moment can pass quickly. If there is a movement back toward the urban environment, which I believe there is, and that's going to continue with the way mobility will change and other aspects of our society. If, if there is a movement in that direction, it's not indefinite and it can easily slip through the fingers of a community that can't position itself to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And that's why a, a lot of the work we're focusing on is not so much how to advantage ourselves of that piece, but how to put these communities back at the same starting line that everybody else or m most other communities are at so that they can at least get into the, into the competition. So it's a long way of saying what we're really focusing on are the most chronically distressed places, mm -hmm. the ones that, that don't seem to find a path forward, even in the most robust period of growth. And, and that's, what we're, that's what we're really trying to get our arms around. We should send you a study that we did last year. It's called The Land of In-Between, where we looked at uh, some, uh, a couple smaller cities to try to figure out how to... Uh, reinvigorate them. And we didn't look at Flint. Uh, maybe we should have. But we ended up looking at Evansville, Indiana and Henderson County, Kentucky, both sides of the river. And then we also looked at the Quad Cities area in western Illinois and eastern Iowa. I think the conclusions we came to were mostly there are local tools there, but what was often missing was coordination, uh, partnership, and uh, both a willingness, which was part of the problem, and an ability to sort of reach outside themselves and take advantage of state resources that were there, but, but had to kind of be discovered and mined, as well as federal resources, which in some cases were there. But a lot of it came down to, I mean, these were areas where there were multiple jurisdictions, not only a single city, but you had a city, you had a county, you had a state. And then you had also, in the case of Evansville, you had Kentucky across the river. How do you work together and coordinate multiple political jurisdictions that are all kind of pulling in different directions? It's a real problem. I admire you for trying to deal with it. You think you're going to get this added into the bill? I think so. I mean, we will. The commitment from, you know, our leadership is really strong. It's, it's one of those issues where the clock is ticking on reauthorization. That's always helpful. And that we're building this out. You know, we're, we're close to having legislative language that we can, we can go with, which is, you know, the, the real question. I mean, this stuff doesn't write itself. You actually got to put pen to paper and, I think a lot of times people 
who haven't had the experience that we have had uh, don't realize that that part of it is not automatic. It takes some time. We've been working on it for quite a while. I do think this issue that you raised about assembling political will in these communities is a big one. And it's part of the struggle that we're also, not so much in this legislation, but separate work that I've been doing, really trying to address. Part of the struggle for a lot of these places is that the civic, not just political, but the civic leadership isn't what it once was. And this is especially true in older manufacturing communities that had a single either industry or in most cases, not just an industry, but a single company as the core of its economy. And with that came a lot of the private sector civic leaders who could help bring sort of the political business community leadership together around a vision. And a lot of the communities we're talking about, that civic leadership is no longer present. Even if the company has its sort of remaining presence, they don't have the long-term, you know, management and, you know, the GM used to have in Flint, Flint is the birthplace of General Motors. I can't remember how many vice presidents of the company I knew because they lived in my community and they lived in my community and they were part of that civic leadership. Not so much anymore. And that's a real deficit. I mean, sometimes we think of the political elected leadership as being the source of a lot of the energy here. And some of it's true, but a lot of it really comes from private sector leadership. Yeah, it's, a, it's often called social capital. But uh, I grew up near Akron, Ohio, and I know the legacy of Harvey Firestone and Cyberling and the original founders of the, of the, of the rubber entire industry. They were very deep in philanthropy. They were committed to education. I think the University of Akron still produces polymer chemists at uh, astounding rates. Uh, at, at the graduate level, at least. But th- those are kind of, they're running on fumes at the moment, like a lot of places, because the social capital doesn't renew itself as as the, the world restructures. I mean, we, in my hometown, we're very fortunate in that Charles Stewart Mott, one of the founders of General Motors, sort of survivor, you know, who went through those early wars and came out on top. His foundation, his legacy, Mm-hmm. has been in Flint for 80 years. Uh, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, based right in downtown Flint, you know, as a philanthropy, a four, almost $4 uh, billion dollar foundation, that's one thing. But the thought leadership that comes with having a large philanthropy based in that community that sort of offsets some of the losses that we've experienced in Flint. But that's not so much the case in many of these older cities, right? where there's small business people, you know, like mm-hmm. insurance company uh, owners or you know, folks who are really just trying to keep the doors open and elected political leadership that might not have all the tools they need. So, Congressman, what what is the long term and short term impact of TAA for these communities, especially as they're recovering from, you know, hardships brought on by the by the pandemic? Hopefully the long term impact will be that they can compete again for whatever share of the economy they can organize themselves to compete for. As it stands right now, it's a competition that they're almost predestined to lose. So the, 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 the short-term affects the long-term. The short-term impact for me would be to clean up the overhang of the past. And, and, quite, and that's, that's really quite a literal description of the situation. 
I'll give you an example. In older industrial cities, they have these huge tracts of industrial land that are vacant or empty, none of which are primed for development unless you happen to have an industrial development that has almost un <laughs> unbelievable patience to redevelop a large industrial brownfield. You have to accept the uncertainty of the remediation process and the time. And I used to do a lot of really tough real estate development. Yeah. I was the president of a land bank, the first modern land bank really in this country that I formed about 20 years ago. We did a lot of redevelopment. What I learned is fascinating is that as anyone can learn anything, time kills all deals. And if you introduce the element of time mm -hmm. into a development project, game over. Yeah. So part of what we want to do with this approach is to try to get money into these communities to do essentially advanced remediation of brownfield sites mm -hmm. so that they are actually marketable sites today, not marketable if you have the patience and the will to wait and to go through that process. And it seems really kind of fundamental. It doesn't seem like really, it's not interesting or cool. It's not like some new flashy program, but it really makes a difference being able to do something like that. And then the other piece of it beyond cleaning up demolition, site preparation, all the stuff that essentially heals the land in these places. It's helping them re sort of rethink and reconfigure their existing infrastructure grid. Because taking Flint as an example, it's a great example for everything. You know, Flint population peaked in 1960 at 197,000. Mm -hmm. In 1970, it was still 193,000. Today, it's about 95,000. It has a water, sewer, road, infrastructure grid or backbone that is built to support and be supported by about 250,000 people, which is what the master plan back in the 60s expected, mm -hmm. which means it has the most expensive water in America because you have a water system designed for 250,000 people. Yeah being paid for by 95,000 people. And that system has all the same transmission lines, everything that would be required for a community two and a half times its size. We got to fix that. That's another piece of this. And then the final other piece, which probably is a little further downstream, is to look at the set of development incentives that the federal government offers and try to tailor and potentially supercharge those so that an empty site adjacent to like a, an opportunity zone, for example, adjacent to a growth metro doesn't have the same federal benefit related to development that an opportunity zone in a highly chronically distressed community like Flint would have, where the, the effect of investment in that place, an older community, is transformational. The effect of investment in one of these other growing communities is marginal at best. It's good, but it's marginal in terms of really having the big impact on the sustainability and the trajectory of a community. We shouldn't have a system that treats those two geographies as if the benefits that we invest in create equal outcome. They don't. 
And so we ought to end those benefits as much as we can in favor of the most chronically distressed places. Speaking of impacts, let's talk about infrastructure for a second. President Biden's got a huge infrastructure plan in front of the Congress. Can you give us an update on where the proposal is and you know, what's the likelihood for bipartisan support? And, and really, you know, I think this is something we always talk about on this show. What are the implications uh, President Biden's proposal has for trade and for Buy America policies? Yeah, well, starting with the last point, I mean, I think one of the problems that I think we face with trade is that we focus on, often anyway, we focus our discussion on trade, to use a sports analogy, on the rules of the game and on working the referee you know if you can do those things you can have you can affect the outcome of the game bill and scott are experts at working the refs <laughs> but a, but a great coach you know say jim harbaugh mm-hmm. would say let's get on the practice field and let's get better at what we do let's get faster let's get stronger let's call better plays not just work the ref and make sure that you know, we understand the rules and we can change the rules. Trade conversations spend, I think, a disproportionate amount of necessary time, a disproportionate amount of time on the rules of trade and on working the ref, where what we need to do is just get better at what we do. We need to be more productive. And, and infrastructure is global trade. 21st century infrastructure affects our ability to be competitive in the global economy. And so that's a big piece of it. If, as a part of that, we also support the Buy American approach, reshore some of our critical supply chain, put ourselves in a position where we're not as completely trade dependent. We want to be engaged in global trade, but so dependent that the loss, for example, of control of solar cell production the production of polysilicon, for example, which is affecting my district. If we lose control of these elements that are so big in terms of the way our future looks, we take the tools out of our hand when it comes to trade because we're too susceptible to retaliatory actions by China, for example. So I think this all does fit. It's all sort of of a piece, making sure that we have a, a, a rules structure, a rules-based structure for trade, making sure that there are referees who are willing to enforce the rules, but getting better and being more efficient and being more productive and reshoring as much of our critical supply chain as we can isn't working against global trade as a way to grow our economy, but actually just strengthens our hand in, in terms of how we can engage uh, across the world. I just met this morning with a handful of other um, House and Senate members, bipartisan group, five or six of us met with the foreign minister uh, from Australia, who was like one of the first actual in-person meetings I've had in a long, long time. Uh, But she was in town, and and almost all of our discussion was on this particular subject. How can we strengthen democracies in the West, not just with trade deals, but with what we're doing, how we're becoming more productive, so that we're in a better position to take on uh, some of the really nefarious activities and dangerous practices that are Chinese competition is engaging. Well, that Harbaugh guy's a pretty good coach, I gotta say. You guys gotta love him. Yeah, no. Well, I, I'm a big fan of him because his brother John coaches my team, the Baltimore Ravens. So 
We love those Harbaugh guys. Is his job safe? I mean, this is a key question that Scott and I always have being Ohio State fans. Most Ohio State fans are more interested in his continued presence at Michigan than a lot of Michigan fans are. Yeah. Now, to be clear, he comes in second to Rich Rodriguez. That was my favorite Michigan coach of all time. So. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> no. So where, where do you think the proposal is right now in Congress? What kind of chance do you think it has? I think, it, I think we're going to get something done. You know, that I, I, I think there's a lot of conversation lately. I don't know how, how this is all going to shake out, that we may still be able to do a big bill, maybe not as big as we would like or what the president proposed, um, but a big bill that has some bipartisan support that we might be able to move through the House and Senate under regular order and not have to use um, the reconciliation process. Because it, it gives us a little more space around policy when we don't have to use the budget reconciliation process. There's a way for us to do some of the things. There appears to be a Senate process supportive of that. I've noted that uh, Senator Carper and uh, and Shelley Capito, Senator Capito of West Virginia, are working together very closely and have gotten that conversation to the point where 60 votes in the Senate is not really going to be a problem that can't be, can't be solved. Bill and I preach about this uh, occasionally on the show of how important committee work is and how important the professionalism of the people on Capitol Hill can be if you let them do their jobs. And uh, so we're hoping that continues. That could be really problematic even in getting this done is if we decide we have to pay for this or some of it, you know, we have to offset it, you know, with anything in the tax code, because I don't think we get 60 votes for anything substantial in the tax code. I think it's tough. Yeah. Tax code meeting, raising taxes, raising capital gains, raising, you know, estate uh, or lowering estate taxes, things like that is what you're talking about. I mean, there may be a little more appetite around some of the global tax issues than there is for anything related to the corporate rate and especially to, you know, to cap gains. I think that's going to be tough. And a lot of us feel like there is space for us to do something about this. But I think it's just important to keep in mind that If we end up having to offset some of this infrastructure spending with revenues, it changes the conversation pretty dramatically. You know, I, I, this is a good chance for me to interject. I actually think we're missing an opportunity, and I've been apparently a one-note Johnny on this. I believe we can do a structured financing for infrastructure. I think if we, if we believe, which I think we all do, that infrastructure investment mm-hmm. has both a stimulative and a long-term effect on productivity, immediate stimulative impact on the economy, long-term impact on productivity. You know, I did a lot of uh, financing in, in one of the poorest cities in America by creating value and borrowing against that value and having that value pay me back for the cost of creating. I mean, this is what infrastructure, this is what any of us do. If you're in business, you understand you can't continue to be competitive without reinvesting in not just product development, but in the means of production. It's an ideal use of long-term financing as well. I mean, if you're ever going to launch a 50-year treasury bill, now's the time to do it. Yeah, and I, I raised this you know, in one of our meetings the other day, and I think going to long bonds makes sense. I think you could do a laddered, a serious sure. approach to uh, a, ten, you know, a series of 10-year issues, or even longer than that, as you said. But if you put it out far enough, if we have a 10-year build-out and we have long bonds 
being issued as we need the cash, then we're not borrowing money we're not going to use. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a there's an arbitrage value right. to the current interest rate environment that we're in. Even though you know the curve the interest curve is going to bend upward the longer out we go, it's still an environment that it just says borrow money right now if you're going to oh, yeah. uh, do this. And be, I think part of the pushback to doing infrastructure. Uh, without quote paying for it, it's it's kind of a misnomer. Uh, we, of course, we pay for it. We just pay for it with debt. The question right. is, does that debt have an asset on the other side of the balance sheet? Mm-hmm. So that this is like the difference between a mortgage and a credit card. This Correct. is a mortgage, and I I I know that conceptually most people get that. Mm-hmm. I just think there's a decent argument to say. Let's develop a financing mechanism, a national infrastructure bank, some mechanism that would issue specific debt for infrastructure, make it the patriotic thing for us all through our institutional investor network and even, even as Americans, invest in our own future, align the incentives so that that debt is a patriotic act that also pays you back and makes us more productive as opposed to just consigning the debt associated with in- infrastructure to the same heap of debt for less defensible mm-hmm. use of, de- of deficit financing. I think it's a mistake to not go down that path. Well, I've noted uh, in the past that the, o- the largest organization that I've ever seen that doesn't have a capital budget is the United States of America. I, I mean, I've, I've seen one person sole proprietorships with a capital budget. Okay, but the U.S. government doesn't have one. Yeah, I mean that is that is the issue, and that's why I think creating a mechanism where it's still debt, mm-hmm. but pegging the debt, so the repayment to money captured from growth, I think it's just it's still the same structure that we're dealing with in a sense, but it's more intentional and more defensible. And I think for the American people, more acceptable to, to think about it that way. Well, you know, Congressman, this this conversation, I hope, gives our listeners a lot of optimism because, you know, many people these days think that Congress is just constantly at each other's throats fighting over partisan issues. And, you know, you're talking about really substantive policy proposals. And I think, you know, if you watch cable news, if you watch, you know, depending on what you read, depending on what you watch, you don't get the sense that there's a lot of great creative policy development going on up on the Hill. What do you think is going to happen? Um, is there is there a will to get any of this done? There is. I mean, I think just admittedly, we are in the toughest environment to overcome right now that I've ever experienced. And a lot of this is you know, in the wake of the January 6th attack, which is impossible to divorce from any of this stuff that's going on. It's just, it hangs in the air here. I don't know what day this will be um, uh, out there, but today happened to be the day that um, Liz Cheney was removed as the number three person in the Republican leadership. Just another example of how the overhang of the January 6th thing hangs in the environment. So, it's a tough environment. But you got a big agenda and a small majority, and that's that's really tough to do. I mean, my view on this has been we got to continue to focus, as you were saying, on the policies. 
talk about the politics, talk about what we think needs to get done and what the elements of the, of the solution look like. Continuously speak about the policy. Try to ignore some of this other stuff to the extent we can. Because people do want us to get stuff done. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're in the business now, especially in the slim majorities that we have in the House and the Senate, slim as possible majority of the Senate. We can no longer be in the, here's what we're for business. Mm-hmm. You know, we can no longer be in the celebration of noble defeat business. We have to be in the delivery business. Yeah. We have to actually deliver policy. So we have to continue to be open to a more sustainable set of solutions because they're bipartisan, not going to be subject to sort of a whipsaw of the policy that we've seen take place, the majority's changing. Bipartisan solutions are better because they're typically more sustainable. But if we can't, that doesn't forgive us the obligation to get get things done. Yeah. Uh, we have to get things done. And this is why, you know, this infrastructure bill or even some of the more broadly defined uh, investments that uh, may not technically be infrastructure, but we think are fundamentally important to the economy. We've got to deliver on this. And, you know, I, my view is it's all sounds like noise to the people across the country when it's us arguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we can explain that it's, this is why we're arguing for, we can just get things done as, as best we can hoping to get a bipartisan answer. But if we don't, we just have to roll up our sleeves, use the tools we have. I'm willing to use the budget reconciliation tool if we have to, because people I work for, they don't want they don't want explanation. They just want me to show them some results. Congressman, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for giving us such a, a great amount of your time today. Best of luck with going forward with these proposals, and we hope to be able to check in with you again soon. Absolutely. Anytime. Enjoy it. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.